Well, this morning, for the next few moments, I want to open God's Word and share with you regarding a sober reality that I believe we all face. And it's the reality of unanswered questions. The truth is that although we are a diverse group this morning, we're different in many ways. One of the ways in which we're not different is we have questions. We have questions about life in general, and we have questions about our lives in particular for which we have no answers. And many of those questions are big questions, and so they're directed to God. And when we consider the nature of those questions, largely they are why questions. They're not what questions, they're not who questions, they're not even when questions although we have a lot of when questions as well. The reality is that the why questions are the most asked questions, and they're the most weighty questions. We ask God big questions like, why do you allow suffering? And why do you allow evil? And why do you allow sin in the world? And why did you allow it in the first place? Why is it that the wicked seem to prosper when the righteous seem to suffer? But for most of us this morning, I think the questions are really personal. Uh, Why questions are personal? We ask questions like, why am I suffering? Why did my marriage break down? Why have you not healed me yet? Why did you not protect me? Why can't I find a job? Why am I always depressed? Why aren't you answering my prayer? And the list goes on. Friends, as important as these questions are to us, God never promises that we will get answers to them in this life or even in the life to come. But the good news is that God has given us his word. And though he has not given us specific answers to our questions, he has given us his word that gives us perspective on our questions. And we can turn to many places in God's Word to find perspective on our questions. And one of those places is Psalm 131. And for the remainder of our time this morning, I want us to learn about the example of the psalmist David and how we can live with unanswered questions. So please turn there with me if you have not yet done so. And this morning I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you have another translation, yours will read slightly differently. Psalm 131, beginning at verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so grateful this morning for the privilege of being in this church with these people. 
Lord, thank you for the ways you have already spoken to our hearts in song. Thank you for the ways that you have cared for us this morning as we were exhorted, as we were prayed for. And Father, we ask now that you would speak to us further as we sit under the preaching of your word. Lord, I thank you that you know us by name and nature and circumstance. And I ask, Lord, that you would speak to each heart in specific ways that we need to hear from you and in ways that only you can. Lord, in particular, I pray that you would give us perspective from your word as we have these lingering questions in our minds, as we live in a fallen world that is broken and a world where life sometimes makes no sense. So, Father, we proud to you this morning. We pray that you would care for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll have to do it the whole time. So, so the question this morning is, how do we live with unanswered questions? Or to make it more personal, How should you live with unanswered questions? And to bring it even in more immediate focus, how are you presently dealing with your unanswered questions about life in general and your life in particular? In Psalm 131, the psalmist seems to have been facing some big issues. He seems to be facing some issues that he did not understand and perhaps some more questions for which he had no answers. And in these three verses, I believe that there's much that can help us as we similarly deal and live with unanswered questions. So in our remaining time, I want to commend to you three ways in which we should respond to unanswered questions that loom large in our lives. First of all, we should respond with a humble heart before God. That's what the psalmist does in verse 1 of this psalm. Notice what he says. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. From these words of the psalmist, we see a statement of humility before God. And in them he gives us three different expressions of pride. The first one is a heart that is lifted up. The second one is eyes that are raised too high. And the third is occupying oneself with things too great and too marvelous to understand. And what he says is, Oh Lord, I'm not proud. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So another way that we can understand the psalmist and what he's saying is that we need to see that being occupied with big questions by their very nature that can only be answered by God is an expression of pride. Notice, however, that the psalmist is not saying that we must not question God. He's not saying that at all. 
Friends, it is perfectly fine to question God. And we see this in Scripture. Servants of God, saints of God, questioned God as they sought to understand various situations they were facing. For example, in Psalm 44, verses 23 through 26, we read, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So the psalmist is not saying that we must not question God, but instead he is saying that we must not occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for us, which would include our unanswered questions. In other words, it is okay to bring our questions to God and even pour our heart to God concerning them, but we must not let those questions occupy us. They must not become an obsession for us. We must not be consumed by what perplexes our hearts. But it is okay to wonder about perplexing questions and to ponder them in our hearts. We just must guard our hearts against being proud and being lifted up before the Lord. It's okay for our eyes to be raised in bewilderment and to have a strong desire to understand divine mystery in our lives. But we must guard against our eyes being raised too high. The psalmist, in the face of things that were too great and too marvelous for him, responded with a humble heart before God. And brothers and sisters, we must do the same. And so I ask this morning, in the face of your unanswered questions about life in general and your life in particular, how are you responding before the Lord? And I say before the Lord because all of life is lived before the face of God. And a quick way to determine how we're responding, whether our heart is humble or proud before the Lord, can be seen in how we handle our unanswered questions. Do you place them before the Lord and wait for his answer in his way and in his time? Or are you preoccupied with them, keeping them before you rather than before God? Now, I'm not saying that we can't pray about things in an ongoing way, the things that burden us, the things that perplex us. We can. We can pray about them in an ongoing way, but we must not be overly occupied with them. Now, some of you are probably wondering, well, how do I know if I'm being occupied with my questions and therefore I'm being proud or not being humble. Well, let's consider the second way that we should respond as it will shed more light to help us detect whether our hearts are humble or proud before the Lord. The second way the psalmist teaches us to respond in the face of unanswered questions is this. We should respond with a quiet trust in God. Look at what he says in verse 2. His words begin with the conjunction, but. So let's connect what he says here in verse 2 with what he said in verse 1 so that we don't miss the main point of what he's saying. 
O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now notice verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Let's look closely at what the psalmist is saying. First of all, notice the honesty of the psalmist. He honestly discloses to us that he was not always calm and quiet. He wasn't always calm and quiet about the great and marvelous things that he did not understand. Those things that brought him unrest and disquiet. And this should be obvious because he says to us that he had to calm and quiet his soul. And friends, I love, and I'm sure you do as well, the honesty that we find in the Psalms. Notice that the psalmist could have simply said, I, have, I am like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. But had he said that, we would have not seen his process. What the psalmist helps us to do is he helps us to see that he needed to calm his, his noisy soul. He had to quiet himself. He helps us to see that process honestly, basically saying, I wasn't always there, but Lord, I have calmed and quieted my soul. And so this morning, if your soul rages, if your soul is disquieted within you, that's okay. The psalmist evidently had a similar experience as well. To communicate his posture in the face of things too great and marvelous for him, the psalmist uses a figure of speech that we call simile. That's what we call a thing or a person. We say a thing or a person is like something or someone else. So he uses this simile and he says that he was like a weaned child with its mother. Now obviously when the psalmist wrote these words, he was not a child. But he says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. The psalmist uses this picture of a weaned child with its mother to communicate the quiet trust that he had come to in God. Weaning, as we probably all know, and I'm sure some of us better than others, is the process by which babies are gradually taken off milk and they are introduced to solid food. And I think most mothers who are present who have had more than one child can attest to the truth that the experience is different for each child. The weaning process is different. For some it's longer, for some it's shorter, some babies have a harder time than others. For example, some babies when they have not been weaned they will cry murder when they want to be breastfed. And it doesn't matter where the mother is. She could be in the food store. She could be driving the car. She could be on the line in the bank. And they will cry their little heads off. And a casual onlooker would think that the mother is harming the child or not caring for the child in some way. And that's the way unweaned children behave. But the weaned child, on the other hand, has come to experience the care of his mother. He's a bit more mature, he's a bit more patient for food. 
But the picture that the psalmist gives us this morning is not just a picture of a weaned child. He gives us a picture of a weaned child with its mother. And there's a big difference. The child is in the presence of its mother, and that's comfort enough. The child has learned to trust his mother and that his mother would feed him and care for him and the mother's presence brings quiet trust. And friends, so true, so is it true for God's children. As we mature, as we grow in our knowledge of him, we learn to trust him. And like the rain child near to his mother, as we stay near to the Lord, we are in a place of quiet rest and trust. And I think we see the importance of the presence of the Lord and being near to the Lord and how the nearness of the Lord gives us perspective. I think of Psalm 73 where Asaph was having a really bad day and he looked around and he was seeing the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer and he began to ask questions and he said, have I cleansed my hands in vain? And he observes the wicked and then he says this, he transitions and he says, but when I went into the sanctuary of God, I was able to see and I understood their way. Well, friends, we don't have to go to a place to experience God's presence and God's nearness. Whenever we draw near to him, we see more clearly than we saw before. Now, as beautiful as this analogy is about this weaned child, like all analogies, this is not a perfect one and it breaks down. And what I mean by that is that when a child is weaned, that child is weaned. He is weaned permanently. He is, he, he is, he is done with milk and he's now on food. But friends, it's never that way for us. Our trust in God, this quiet trust in God that we enjoy at times, unfortunately it isn't permanent. There are moments and seasons where we enjoy it But if we are truthful with ourselves, we'd recognize that there are times when even after having enjoyed the presence of God, enjoyed his nearness, and having come to a place of quiet rest and trust in him, our hearts rage again and our souls are disquieted within us. And so we find ourselves drawing near again and again and again and again. And that is what we must do. Sometimes we can have the experience of a quiet soul and a raging soul in the same day and even in the same week. And perhaps some of you have experienced that in this very week. But here's what enables us to calm and quiet our raging souls that are sometimes preoccupied with questions for which we have no answers. It's believing in the absolute sovereignty of God and the absolute goodness of God of God. And to have a calm, quiet in our souls when we believe both is it, it is evident. That's the result. When we when we are able to lay hold and believe in the absolute sovereignty of God and the absolute goodness of God, it brings us to this sense of trust. Because when we believe that there's not a single detail of our lives 
over which God is not sovereign. And we believe that God is absolutely good and he works in his people's lives for their good. Holding those two together, we're able to come to a place of trust. And we grow in our trust for God when we believe both of them. You see, because if you only believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, but not in the goodness of God, then although he is all-powerful, we really can't have faith that he will be absolutely good to us. And then if we believe in the absolute goodness of God, but not in the absolute sovereignty of God, we can believe that he is good, but can't have faith that he is powerful enough to bring his goodness to us, because there's something or someone else out there that can trump the goodness that he wants to bring to us. I remember when I was a young boy growing up in the home church that I was raised in, there was a man in our church who was a commercial banana farmer, and he had acres upon acres on another island that he cultivated. And six months of the year, we are faced with hurricanes. And a hurricane came through and destroyed his farm. And he grew bitter. And I was young, but I could remember my parents talking about him and how he had stopped attending church. And when members would go by to visit with him, he would say, how could God allow that to happen to me? And he was bitter and he would not be open to people talking to him. And my recollection is he died very angry and very bitter and outside of church. And so he believed in the absolute sovereignty of God. And that was why he was saying, God, you're responsible. And yes, God was sovereign over that storm. But he didn't believe in the absolute goodness of God. And so in the midst of a great trial... He drew back and he was in despair and he was in despondency because he did not hold those two truths in tension together, believing that God is absolutely sovereign, but he is also absolutely good. And brothers and sisters, God is sovereign. God is good. In addition to that, God is near. And God is near to us in a way that the psalmist would not have experienced. God is near to us because Jesus Christ came to this earth as Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he went to the cross to pay the price of sin, to reconcile sinners to God. And he died and was buried and rose again and ascended to the right hand of God. And together with the Father sent the Holy Spirit to abide with us and to be our comforter. And brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is with us and he is ever near to us. And so let me ask you this morning in the face of your unanswered questions, is your soul calm and quiet in the presence of your Father who is absolutely sovereign and absolutely good? And I pray so. And I pray that if that's not the case for you right now. I pray that God will use his word this morning to care for you and to bring you to a place to truly believe that it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. He is absolutely sovereign and he is absolutely good working 
in those circumstances for your good. So in the face of questions that remain, we are to respond with a humble heart before God, with a quiet trust in God. And third and finally, and briefly, we need to respond with an enduring hope in God. Notice in verse 3 that the psalmist transitions from a personal prayer to God to a general instruction to God's people. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And notice what the psalmist is doing. The psalmist is in essence calling the people of God to see that God can be trusted and they can therefore root their hope in him. It is this ongoing hope in the Lord that will help us to calm and quiet our souls even when unanswered questions get the better part of us and we are tempted to become disquieted. And friends, anyone or anything that can change is not worthy of our trust. But because the Lord is unchanging, we can trust in him with an enduring hope. Anyone who does not know all things is not worthy of an enduring hope. But God knows all things, and therefore he is worthy of us putting our hope in him. God knows the answers to our questions that remain. But for reasons known to himself, he keeps some things as his secrets as we see in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. Brothers and sisters, we need to be content with knowing that God knows, even though we don't know. And when we do, we can hope in him in an enduring way. And scripture says that those who hope in him will not be ashamed. And you know, this morning, as much as we would love to have answers to our many big questions, the truth is, having answers to those questions may be desirable, but not necessary. You probably heard people say, man, I can't wait to get to heaven. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord this question. But you know what? In heaven, questions really won't matter. So here on earth, the answers aren't necessary. And then in heaven, the questions won't matter. At our church, we run the Christianity Explored Evangelism course and During the first session, one question that is asked of the participants is this. If you could ask God any question that you knew he would answer, what would that question be? And over the four years that we've been running the course, I've heard some amazing questions that I just hadn't thought about. And people ask all kinds of different questions. But as I close this morning... I want to share with you the most important question that anyone can ask in this life. It's the same question that the Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul and Silas in Acts 16, verse 30, when he said, 
What must I do to be saved? And friends, this question is vitally important because our very eternity hangs on it. And for those of you who have come to Christ, you should take comfort that in the midst of all of your unanswered questions, this is not one of them. You know, by the grace of God, the answer to this question. It was settled for you the moment you came to to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But if you're here this morning as one who has not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, meaning you don't know him, meaning you don't live for him, you're not serving him, then this question, what must I do to be saved, is the most important question that you need to know the answer to. And it's the most important question that you need to respond to. And the truth is that this morning, if you're here as an unbeliever, largely you've been listening in on a conversation. Because the words of Psalm 131 are written to the people of God. They're written to the people of God who are being called to respond to God in the particular way that Psalm 131 calls for. And since this question, what must I do to be saved, is life's most important question, then the answer is life's most important information. But the truth is, it's more than information. The Bible calls it good news. In response to the Philippian jailer's question, Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. That's the good news that the Apostle Paul shared with the Philippian jailer, who was burdened down with sin and guilt. And it's the good news that I share with you this morning. The good news is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The good news is that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life that none of us could ever live. And then he went to the cross and he died a substitutionary death, not for his own sins, but for our own sins. He stood in our place as our substitute. And because of his perfect life and his substitutionary death, God is able to save and receive believing sinners. And so if that's your circumstance this morning where you have not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, know that this is your most important question this morning. And I pray that you, before you leave this place, would put faith in Jesus Christ. You would reside your trust in the only one who is able to save. And I pray that... um, If you want to do that, you need prayer, you want someone to just maybe talk with you more about the message, I and the pastors would remain behind just to talk with you and to pray with you in that regard. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your faithfulness to us. Lord, thank you that you have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We thank you, Lord, that The questions that remain, we are able to lay at your feet. Are we able to trust you knowing that even though we don't know the answers, you know the answers. Father, I pray that all over this room you'd care for your people. Lord, you know the deep, lingering questions in every heart. Would you be sufficient, Lord, 
in responding to each heart and bringing comfort and directing them once again to your word. Father, do your work, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.